and welcome to Scuttlebutt, episode 49. Today, William and Vic are going to talk to Ron Cookson, Chief Warrant Officer 5 Retired, who is the National Secretary of the Marine Corps Mustang Association. Uh, Mustangs and the Marine Corps, uh, if you forgot, are prior enlisted who go on to become officers. Uh, there's only about 15,000 of them in the entire country. That's, uh, that number is every Mustang going all the way back to World War II. So it's a little looked at corner of the world, and we'll talk about it a little bit today. Also, in other scuttlebutt news, uh, the long road with our favorite sergeants major, uh, Justin Lee Hugh and Rocky Kinzer, they are crossing the Mississippi River today, which means that they have now walked from Boston Harbor all the way to the Mississippi River. That is some um, early pioneer levels of walking there. Um, I'm sure they used horses back then, and these guys are just humping it a little bit harder than normal. But, yes, they are moving into Dubuque, Iowa today. Uh, also, Tom Schumann and Zanola Zaki's book, uh, Always Faithful, is tearing up the charts right now. It's getting rave reviews. If you haven't checked it out yet, put it on your list. If uh, you're not one to buy books right now, you know folks that uh, like books for Christmas presents or something, just get it, wrap it, you know. Hand it out. Like, it's a great book. It is part memoir, part thriller. It alternates chapters between the two perspectives of Tom and Zach, and it is just a fantastic read. You got to check it out. Also, out in Ukraine, uh, Andy Milburn, who's been on the show a couple times, uh, is working with the Mozart Group to get civilians out of eastern Ukraine and the hot spots to safety. So him and the Mozart group are out there risking their lives, trying to save Ukrainian lives, uh, to make sure that they're not getting hit by Russian missiles. Uh, and speaking of missiles, our old pal from a few episodes ago, Ray Branham, uh, who works on attackums with uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, Ukraine is asking for those missiles by name. So if you start hearing that in the news, uh, check out our episode with Ray and uh, learn a little bit about them. Um, also, in MCA news, uh, this week, Thursday, uh, the Combat Development Dinner. If you tune in live around 2,000 hours, that's uh, 8 o'clock, uh, you can check out the live comments on our live stream on our YouTube channel from the Honorable Thomas Ross, who is the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition. Uh, Generally, we've been looking at that kind of stuff a lot on the podcast, so you might have some interest in that. Um, if you can't catch it live, we'll have a truncated version up, tr uh, truncated version of it up. Uh, if not Friday, definitely by Monday midday on our YouTube channel that you can also check out. So that's what's going on in the world of Scuttlebutt. Uh, this was episode 49, and next week is our big 50th. Um, we have been airing episodes for almost a year now. We're kind of right up at that cusp, so uh, let's pop some champagne and have a good time some, sometime in the near future. And without any further ado, here's William and Vic talking to Ron Cookson. Hello, uh, Scuttlebutt listeners here. It's uh, William, and I'm here with Vic on the other end. And then today we are interviewing Chief Warrant Officer 5, retired Ronald Cookson, who is also the Secretary of the Marine Corps Mustang Association. How you doing? Good afternoon. 
Well, it's great, great to hear you. And also, uh, he to some uh, who don't know, he also goes by the Godfather, as he is my Godfather. <laughs> um, I, I learned a lot of uh, dirty tricks in the trade, as, such as uh, horse decapitation and uh, bringing cannolis with you and leaving and leaving the guns. But uh, anyways, how are you today, sir? I'm good, William. How are you? Uh, just just living living the dream over in a uh, in us uh, in the scuttlebutt world. So uh, starting off, would you mind us? Just telling some uh, background information, how you wound up in the core, uh, about, a bit about your career, and then uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps right out of high school in 1976. The reason I joined, I never thought of doing anything else but being a Marine. Um, that's all I ever wanted to do. I was a member of the Young Marines um, organization for many years when I was growing up. So I uh, really enjoyed that, and that really influenced me to uh, join the Marine Corps. Um, enjoyed all 26 years I was in, had some really nice duty stations. I was lucky enough to uh, be stationed in Washington, D.C., Marine Barracks 8th and I, which is the oldest barracks of the Corps. I was a um, supply clerk, but I got to do a lot of ceremonial duties. So I got to um, do some interesting things. I got to meet some interesting people like Elizabeth Taylor and uh, President Jimmy Carter. I got to escort his daughter, Amy, um, which was, uh, was a treat. And um, so that was a really good duty station. Enjoyed that. I would say that uh, I've been supply most of my career. But when I picked up one officer, I became a um, supply officer. They call it a ground supply operations officer. Fancy title for being a supply officer. But before being uh, a warrant officer, my last assignment was as a Marine security guard. And uh, at uh, two American embassies, which um, was probably my best um, and most memorable uh, duty assignments, uh, being stationed at the American embassy in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, um, to learn, uh, you know, their culture, which is, of course, Muslim, which is completely different than, you know, America's culture. So I found that very, very interesting, enjoyed my entire time there. Uh, and then was sent over um, to uh, the American Embassy in uh, Colombo, Sri Lanka, which is a third world country, a lot different than America. You know, uh, it was uh, an eye shocker, I guess, because um, they are a very poor country. Um, but um, I enjoyed my time there, especially as the NCYC. Again, I got to um, be in charge of some Marines. I had my own house and car and driver and servants, and uh, it was great. I enjoyed it as a sergeant. Uh, plus, that's where I met my wife. So, and then when I came back to the States, um, I was selected uh, soon after that. Um, I picked up staff sergeant, and then I was selected for the warrant officer program. And since uh, the warrant officer program, I've, um, I was stationed in um, Hawaii, which is Nice place to be stationed. Uh, that's the one place that I can guarantee if you're stationed there, your entire family will come and visit. Even those that live in another country will come and visit you if you're in Hawaii. So, but it was enjoyable. And then I retired uh, from the Marine Corps. Uh, last duty station was headquartered Marine Corps in um, Washington, D.C. I was there during uh, when 9-11 hit and the Pentagon was uh, was hit. And, and I retired soon after uh, 26 years. It's very enjoyable. All right. So you, you, when you're at the Marine Barracks, you got to hang out with a lot of VIPs and, and Liz Taylor. How is that not as memorable as compared to, to your uh, to your uh, embassy tours? What, what made what made what made the embassy 
tours more more memorable to you than you know hanging out with with you know high class top tier Americans? I think for me it was because um, you know um, growing up never left the country, you know Connecticut, Maine. That's about the only two states I ever went to. Um, so even you know when I joined the Corps, Washington D.C. you know was uh, campus unit in Washington D.C. and then embassy duty. And I think for me it's because it was two countries that are so different from the United States and so different from each other. And just to be able to, you know, talk to the locals, learn about their culture, learn about their customs um, and some of the difficulties they have. You know, like I said, Colombo is, you know, Sri Lanka is very poor. You know, cholera is rampant, you know, in, in that country. So, you know, they, they draw, you go out country, you draw water from rivers, well, that's also where they take their showers. That's, you know, everything comes from the river. So, you know, there's no uh, running water. There's no toilets. It's go out in the river, you know, things like that. Even in Colombo, which is more sophisticated, you know, it's still, you can still tell that it's a poor country, you know. Um, but uh, I, that's, I think that's why I enjoyed embassy duty more than any of the other duty stations I was at. It's I got to learn a lot about other countries um, that I had no idea about being sheltered in the United States, if you know what I mean. Yes, so so to speak. So you say you you started off at Paris Island and then eventually you you became an officer. What what inspired you to transition from enlisted <laughs> to officer ranks? To be absolutely honest with you, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I, I was happy being a staff sergeant, being a supply chief. It was actually my division supply officer who uh, called me into his office one day and said, I want you to sign this. And I asked, you know, as a staff sergeant, you don't ask colonels, you just do what they say. So I signed it. And he says, that's your warrant officer package. I said, what's a warrant officer? I had no clue. And um, and then he instructed me, of course, what a warrant officer is, you know, people, individuals that were enlisted show leadership ability, technical expertise in, in, in the field and are selected. So I myself, I had no inkling, you know, of doing that, but I'm very happy he did it. Um, very proud to be a, a, you know, be a Mustang. And, um, but uh, yeah, that was interesting. And uh, as you mentioned, you served uh, uh, several other tours abroad, and you actually, I believe, you served with my mother at one point during, was it Desert Storm, Desert Shield, or? Yes, I did, and your your dad was actually next door, <laughs> oh. compound next door, um, uh, providing security for the area. Um, but yeah, I got to uh, be with, serve with your mom at the Persian Gulf before I moved up farther north, and that's when your dad came, and, uh, and he was there. So uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was different. It was how was your experiences overall during during the during that era? Um, okay, um, I, I have to admit that the food was horrible. <laughs> I lived off of uh, Snickers bars and uh, tea that my wife and her family would send me the tea, British tea, and I trade uh, some of the tea with the British for their tea and uh, and lived off of Snickers bars um, because uh, food wasn't all that good being that far up north. Um, down south, it was better, of course. But, um, you know, it was a good experience. Um, I got to really, I guess, 
broaden my leadership ability being there. I was the XO. So, you know, I had, you know, about 60 Marines that were in the compound with supply compound with us. So, you know, the stress level was always high because of where you are, what's going on. So it was nice because it gave me the opportunity to really, I guess, hone my leadership and, and be able to, you know, help the young Marines out to kind of relieve some of their stress. You know, of course, there's family problems and there's no such thing as computers back then. So, you know, it was all male. So, you know, and unfortunately there were a lot of Dear John letters, you know, from wives who just couldn't handle their, you know, their husbands being away. So, you know, that's additional stress. So, um, so it was interesting. It was interesting. So Ron, um, oh, sorry, William. Ron, uh, your time is pretty interesting, especially given what we know in a modern context of some of these other countries. You were in Saudi Arabia, late 70s, early 80s. Um, you know, we had, you know, though the wounds of Vietnam were still obviously very fresh for us. What was it like being in not just a Muslim country, but in Saudi Arabia at a time when they were very heavy supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan was like, Kind of walk us through your experiences as we juxtapose it to today, where, you know, if you're in Saudi Arabia as an American, you're very much pretty much stuck to the compound. Um, you know, really tight security on where Americans go, especially American service members serving over there. Um, you know, could you just sort of tell us some of your experiences being there, uh, you know, at that time period? Um, I at that time period, also, the uh, American embassy in Islamabad had been taken over. And uh, so there were Americans, uh, I'll call them POWs, even though we're prisoner of war's captors. We had a couple of families, actually, that were living on the compound in Saudi Arabia. Um, so they were very restricted, of course, and needed extra security just because of what was going on in Iran and the, the tides ties that Saudi Arabia had. But um, to be honest, um, the Marines, um, we were not restricted to the compound. Now, we were restricted how far we could go. We had we always had to be, you know, within a 30-minute distance of returning to the embassy in case there was an emergency. But we were allowed to go out and, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I found it interesting. I found it interesting socializing with the local people, you know, going to the souks, which is their shopping centers, you know, and just uh, and just talking to them. And, and I found uh, the, the Saudi Arabians to be very friendly, uh, very friendly. Um, you, for the most part, you always have those just like in the U.S. You've got some that are, you know, critical of other countries and religions and things like that. But I found in Saudi Arabia, as long as you abide by their rules and regulations, um, you, you, we got along. If you violate, you know, simple things, you know, Saudis, women have to walk behind the men. Well, of course, foreigners, they allow women to be with the men. They don't have to wear the full garb, but you can't hold hands. You can't be kissing, you know, it's against their rules. Um, so follow the rules. And I found that in, you know, really any country, follow the rules and regulations. You get along great. The people are very, very friendly, um, very hospitable, you know, always inviting you for lunch. If it was lunchtime or dinner or whatever, it was just their custom to be, to be social, to be kind to others. 
Um, and so it was interesting. It was stressful because of the times, like you said, um, Vic, but, um, but I found that um, as long as you, you know, you know, unfortunately, there was Americans that came over that broke the rules and they suffer the consequences of, you know, being put in, in jail. Um, so, you know, just like here, you come to this country, we expect you to follow the rules and regulations. If you don't, you go to jail. So, but I, I found the people very interesting, to be honest with you, regardless of the religious differences, um, but had very good conversations about, you know, Christianity and, the uh, and Muslim, and they're very willing to listen. They don't agree with it. Just like, you know, we don't, or I don't agree with the Muslim religion, but yeah, know. that's one of the things, um, I found really interesting from my time um, in Muslim countries and dealing with Muslims was their willingness to talk about some of the stickier subjects. And I've always found it really fascinating because they'd always tell me, like, why don't you talk about politics? Why don't you talk about religion? Like, how are we supposed to be friends if I don't if you're not unwilling to talk about the things that you hold closest, most dear to you? Like we need like, yeah, we're not going to agree. Like you're not going to convert me and I'm not going to convert you. But these are the things that make us who we are. So we should be sharing them with each other. Like, why don't you guys talk about this? Stuff? I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely yeah, that, I thought that was so um, I don't know. It was almost like a light bulb going in my head. Like, yeah, just because it's controversial, like we have a very transactional relationship if we aren't really getting to know each other. Yeah, exactly. And how's uh, like you, that compare with your relationship with the uh, the people living in Sri Lanka? Like, what, what was I guess their because uh, an entirely different situation from Saudi Arabia? Entirely uh, different. Um, just just the fact that uh, you know you could tell this they're very poor uh, people, uh, very polite. I mean, they're very polite. Everybody there is Master and Missy. I mean, that's how they address you at all times, Master, Master, Missy, Missy. You know, but. Um, Again, very friendly people, little offstandish sometimes, I think, because um, you know, you think of America and you think of, of in, in some countries, especially like that, you think of, of wealth, you know, you think of Americans being so rich, you know, and these people are, you know, fighting for food almost every day. I mean, the civil war there has been going on for how many years now? Of course, the economic strife that they're having now. So it's, it's, a, it's, but it was still, I, I still, I found it interesting. Most of them are, are, are Hindu. Um, so again, discussing their religion, very open about it. You know, they have their beliefs. I have my beliefs. You're, you're not going to change me. I'm not going to change them. Like they say, was saying with the story, but the willingness to engage, to talk, um, and you know, and I think there for the Sri Lankans, there there is some um, animosity towards the United States only because we are so rich. Uh, but we do a lot in in Sri Lanka. There's you know U.S. aids in there. There's a lot that the U.S. does do, and they're very very appreciative of that. Uh, and most of them will tell you they wish that they had the ability and the funds and the economic power to do it themselves, but they're not. They they do need assistance. Hey, Ron, uh, just to shift gears really quick, I thought it was interesting about – because, it's again, it's so different um, how you uh, were promoted or selected and promoted for a warrant officer. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, obviously there's, uh, you know, there's boards and then there's schooling and all kinds of selection processes and all these things now. Um, and I don't want to say that 
you know, one is they're just different, right? One's not better right. than the other is different. What would you say? And I, I actually sat on a um, well, enlisted to warrant officer board. Um, what what are some of your experiences, especially now as you're, you know, a board member of the Mustang Foundation? What what are some of your experiences and what are some of the things that you've heard that are different about that transition from enlisted to officer um, that's different than what you you experienced? Um, I think the, the process itself of, you know, putting in an application, filling out the, the paperwork, putting in an application um, is, is the same. Um, talking to some of the newer warrant officers, um, it's a, even a more... Um, how can I say, uh, not strict, but um, more competitive, I guess. It's always, it's always been competitive, one officer program, you know, enlisted to officer, you know, the enlisted commissioning program. It's always been a very competitive, you know, you only get maybe 10% annually of um, enlisted of Mustangs. Uh, okay. So for officers each year between, uh, the warrant officer program, ECP bootstrap, if that even is still around any longer, I think it's MCP now the meritorious commissioning program. Yeah. Right. right. That's right. Yeah. It's you know, approximately about 10% of all officers that come into the Marinko each year, about 10% are Mustangs. So it's, you know, 90% are your commissioned officers, college, graduates and stuff like that. The warrant officers, you know, have a place, um, you know, but um, I think it's more competitive now. You really need to um, be on the top of your game, if you know what I mean. Um, really technical expertise, because most of the warrant officers are in technical fields. Um, so logistics, transportation, ammunition, things like that. So you really have to be at the top of your game. And I think education is important. I think the more education you can get on your own, the better it shows the board that, um, you know, you're, 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 you're a go-getter. You want to improve yourself. You know, yeah, you're serious about this. Right. That you're serious. Exactly. About, about the Marine Corps and about leadership you know, um, things like that. So I think the process of becoming a warrant officer is the application, as I said, is the same, but it's a more competitive. Um, and I think they're looking for um, more, more, more in the education. Um, you never had to have a, you know, as a warrant officer, you never had to have a college. That was never a requirement. They're looking more and more, my understanding of um, those individuals that have, you know, taken advantage of all the educational programs that the, the military does have and striving to get that education. It shows that you really, like you said, it's serious about the core and wanting to become an officer. And then, um, so once you're selected to warrant officer, was it kind of a guarantee that you were gonna stay in your occupational field? Or was that somewhat nebulous? Because I know now, at least from my experiences on the board, there were some really tremendously qualified um, enlisted Marines who due to boat spaces or whatever, say he was, a, a you know, an AAV mechanic, but all the AAV mechanic slots were filled with, you know, these three guys. Yep. So we're going to send them over and have them be an LAV mechanic, or actually, you know, we could even potentially make them an administrator if they, like you said, they've got some aptitude that way. So we weren't just going to not 
promote them to warrant officer because there weren't boat spaces in the ox in the occupational field. Was it the same way for you when you were coming yes. up? Yes, very much so. I mean, I think you know the first thing the board, which I I agree with, the board looks at each individual and says, you know, this guy is, or this gal is really qualified. You know, to be a warrant officer, to be an officer, uh, we don't have a slot in their field, but we could put him someplace else. And with his his or her, you know, package with showing, like I said, education that, you know, they're willing to learn. They're willing to step outside the box. So, you know, I've known individuals when even in my class that, you know, aviation, that's a good example. He was an aviation mechanic um, selected for NBC. Yeah. Yeah, I know we saw, especially for human intel, you know, which is a heavy warrant officer uh, uh, occupational field, uh, those boat spaces fill up quick. Quick. Yeah. Yep. But it's, I, I agree. I, it's good that the board just doesn't look, okay, this guy's a supply, a supply, been supply. Well, we don't have any spaces in supply, so we're not going to promote him. Yeah. Uh, Good luck good. on the gunny board. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's good that they can look outside of the box and say, well, you know, maybe he can't be supply, but I think he'd be great into human intel or, you know, something like that. And yeah. then it's up to the individual. Once you get selected, especially if it's not in your field, it's up to you now. It's, it's up to you to, to, to learn your field, you know, everything you can about your field. Um, otherwise, why were you selected? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you said in 2002 you officially retired, but you didn't really quite quite leave the Marine Corps wholesale. You ended up as a, a senior Marine instructor for Marine Corps JROTC uh, up in uh, Pennsylvania. How was it? Uh, how first of all, how did you end up in that position? And then how was it almost to come full circle? Considering the fact you joined the Marine Corps right out of high school, now you're with people who are interested in potentially joining the Marine Corps. I was, you know, I said my last duty station was headquarters Marine Corps. There was a gentleman there uh, named uh, George Barchuk. He was a civilian working at headquarters Marine Corps, but he was actually a gunnery sergeant when I was at 8th and I, and he was the supply chief. Probably one of the most influential individuals that I've ever had and, you know, known in the Marine Corps. Just he really shaped um, shaped me, if you know what I mean, as a Marine young sergeant. And I was a young sergeant. I got promoted to sergeant in less than t- in three years, I think, out of boot camp. So I was a young sergeant. You know, I got in, not in trouble, but I get officers say, you know, you got your blues. Where's your, you know, where's your service strike? You know, because how can a sergeant not have a service strike four years? And I was like, I don't have four years in the Corps. I don't have a service strike. So, you know, he really did shape me. Well, he was there at headquarters Marine Corps and retired. And he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, you know, I really don't know. I said, I've got qualifications to be an environmental field, but I'm not sure I want to do that. He says, look, why don't you go talk to Les Wood? He's in charge of the junior ROTC program. Never heard of it. You know, heard of ROT, did not know about junior reserve officer training course. So that's what I did. Um, I put my package in, was approved to be an instructor, was hired at uh, Ben Selm High School, you know, still work with the Marine Corps, still going to follow all the rules and regulations, all of the you know, height, weight standards, wearing of the uniform every day, things like that. So, you know, still feel it's strongly affiliated. The Marine Corps runs the program, not the schools. The Marine Corps sets the standards, the curriculum, and all like that. And I, I truly enjoyed it. I, I did it for another 17 years. I loved the kids. 
Um, you know, it's um, high school kids, so there's a lot of drama. But, um, you know, and we got all sorts. We got, um, you know, kids that are just what you call just going through high school. You've got kids that are excel, that are in honors in programs, things like that. Uh, we had autistic um, kids in the program who did extremely well. So you do it. And, and I enjoyed it. I really love the kids. It's um, spent more hours doing that really, to be honest, than I did a lot in the Marine Corps um, because of all the extracurricular things that the kids wanted to do, like shooting. We had a shooting team. We had a drill team, you know, a competitive drill team. We had a color guard, you know, so that takes, you can't do it during school hours because you're teaching. So that's all before and after school. But it, it, to be honest, I, I it was very enjoyable. Loved the kids. Absolutely loved the kids. Still would be doing it, but got a little bit too old to keep up with the kids during physical fitness and stuff. And said, you know, I think it's time for me to step out. Well, awesome. And then on top of it, you're still involved with the Marine Corps in one way or another as the uh, secretary of the Marine Corps Mustang Association. So. Can you just, uh, just give us an overview? What is the Marine Corps Mustang Association? What's their history? Uh, just some, some more information on them. So the Marine Corps Mustang Association was actually formed in 1985, on November 10th, 1985, here in Philadelphia. Captain um, um, Robert Richter, um, an LDO, limited duty officer, was, uh, was the individual that Got it, got it approved, got it uh, assigned as a nonprofit organization here in, um, in Philadelphia. Uh, he did it because he heard about the Navy Mustang Association and he started to inquire, well, do the Marines have a, um, a Mustang uh, Association? I mean, Mustangs, in the aspect of enlisted being promoted to officers, have been around since the Civil War. You know, back then it was usually battlefield commissions. If you know, you you prove yourself to be, you know, a, a leader and showed exceptional skills, and you would be battlefield promoted. 1916, I think, is when the warrant officer program started um, in the Marine Corps. I can't speak for the other services, but in the Marine Corps, 1916 is when they started. But um, Captain Richter looked and said, "Well, we need something for the Marines. You know, the Navy's got something. Why can't the Marines?" So he started the ball going, and like I said, on November tenth, nineteen eighty-five, the Marine Corps Mustang Association was was established. It's an organization like our purpose is just to preserve and sustain the history and legacy, past, present, and future Mustangs. Um, you talk to individuals that you know, are were enlisted and then got some type of commission. They're very proud of that. You know, they had, you know, three or four years enlisted, you know, learned a lot. And then the, I think I can improve and then and go and, and get accepted or, you know, go to college, get a commission, come back into the core or one of the, even one of the other services. And I think they have a, a little extra. They know how it is to be enlisted. If you know what I mean, what, what, it, you know, the, the problems there. So the, the the organization was was formed. It's we meet. We try to meet annually. Um, we just did in Washington D.C. We call it a muster, where we get there's approximately 502 Mustangs right now in the Marine Corps Mustang Association. Now there are over 15,000 Mustangs, uh, Marine Corps Mustangs, um, past, present um, type. Um, and 500 have joined the organization. So we're not real big, but it's, it's, you know, it's nice to get together once a year. 
we've got individuals from, you know, Korea, Vietnam, you know, Persian Gulf, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, things like that. It's nice to get together and just, you know, talk and, and learn what everybody's been doing. There are, we have local chapters. There's three local chapters. There's one in Florida. There's one in Arizona. There's one in California. At the national, when I say the national level where the president's secretary are, we don't do, you know, activities with, um, we, um, with organizations like, you know, um, wounded warriors, things like that. That's at the local level, which we would love to have more chapters. They have musters, they have annual, but they also get, you know, do community events, community services. Now, the Mustangs we do from time to time, you know, um, donate to some charitable organizations like Semper Fi, things like that. Um, but it's, it's, it is, we have a great time. We've had two, I would say, one of the questions, we had two individuals, probably everybody knows about their our former Mustangs. General um, Alfred Gray, 29th Commandant of the Marine Corps. He worked his way up as a, a sergeant and then was commissioned um, in 1952. And also Colonel Wesley Fox, Medal of Honor winner, worked his way up to first sergeant and then became, uh, was commissioned uh, an officer, which, you know, he figured first sergeant, he had, a, he had quite a few years in because he was promoted in 1966. He had quite a few years in before he was selected and won the Medal of Honor in Vietnam. Um, so there's been some notable individuals. Um, it's a great organization. Um, I enjoy it, to be honest, when we've got to go, my wife and I, um, uh, we try to go different places, you know, for muscles. We've been to San Antonio, been to New Orleans, you know, been to um, Branston, Missouri, D.C. Next year we're going to San Diego. So we try to move around, if you know what I mean, and not just go one place. Plus that way it allows the guys on the East Coast you know, to go to events and guys on the West Coast, we try to go out there so we can have events there because, you know, traveling. And a lot of these gentlemen are older, to be honest. Um, they're they're probably one of the youngest <laughs> at 65. So they're, they are um, up in age. Um, but it's a great organization, really is. And we, you just you just had a, a big event, right? Because I, I saw you in, in uh, near D.C. a couple weeks ago. Uh, what did you all do for that? So eighth and I, we joined eighth uh, and I Marine Barracks eighth and I um, has a reunion uh, organization as well. So every year they get together, or every two years, I believe. I don't think it's every year. I think it may be every two years. They get together and they uh, in in Washington D.C. They have a reunion, uh, and we just asked if we could tag along, um, and um, they allowed us to, so that uh, we could use you know their contract. Excuse me. Like the contract they established at the hotel, you get a little, you know, discount for that. And then the events they set up, you know, uh, we went to a Friday night parade, which is just always outstanding. Um, you know, that's just it's amazing what they what they do out there. And it's it's that was um, and the commandant was the um, guest of honor that night. So um, they went to the Marine Corps Museum, you know, beautiful place. Um, very well done. Uh, you could spend, you know, all day there and not see everything. It's just the way it's laid out and everything. It's just they've done a great job. Um, you know, they, the banquet, we had a banquet. General Gray was going to be there, but I had to back out at the very last second, unfortunately. But it would have been nice to see him again. Um, so, you know, we had a very nice banquet. You know, again, it was time to Marines, Musters, uh, Mustangs got together. But we also got together with other individuals, you know, from 
enlisted because of, you know we're all officers in the Marine Corps Mustang Association. But of course, Eighth uh, and I, they, uh, they're enlisted and they're officers. So it was nice getting to the, w with them. And it was nice that the Eighth, you know, Eighth and I, because you've got these old guys, no, excuse me, not old guys. You've got these guys from, you know, that were stationed there that were on the silent drill team, you know, that were in the drum and bugle corps, that were in the band, were body bearers. So you can hear them critiquing, which was great, you know. You know, I mean, they, you know, no, we didn't do it that way. We did it this way. Oh, well, oh, we used to do that. Yeah. I used to drop my rifle trying to, you know, things like that. It was just, so that, that was cool. That was really good. So it was a great time. And we're looking forward to going to San Diego next year. So you mentioned that there's 15,000 Mustangs currently in the Marine Corps serving. How, well, I guess, what are they like a large percentage of officers? Are they a smaller percentage of officers? Like, is, are they a, a rarity? Is it common or uncommon to have Mustangs? No, um, the 15,000, like I said, is past, so it goes way okay. back, okay? It's a list of all past and present um, individuals that were prior enlisted and then were selected into some type of officer program. Um, 15,000 sounds like a lot, but you're talking this goes back to World War II. So percentage-wise, it's really very small compared to the number of officers that have been in the Marine Corps, you know, since World War II. So it's a small percentage, which it always is. You know, Mustangs are... You know, um, again, it, like I said before, all the programs are very competitive. It's a small percentage. Um, usually, like I said, about 10% of, you know, um, I don't know how many officers they let in every year into the Marine Corps. But, you know, of that, they try to the 10%. Because I think, personally, this is just my opinion, because of what Mustangs bring, which is that prior enlisted. All right. You've got individuals that have spent time in the enlisted field. They know uh, the enlisted ranks, not that commissioned officers, you know, I'm not saying anything about commissioned officers. Um, there's a learning curve for every commissioned officer because of the fact they were not enlisted. So they have to, I guess, learn about the enlisted ranks and the experiences and things like that. Whereas Mustangs, we were there, if you know what I mean. Plus, we're, we're supposedly technical experts in in the field so um you know our job is to advise the commanding officer you know of 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 whatever needs to be done or whatever's going on um based on our past experience present you know and um it's 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 an honor um you would talk to anybody that was prior enlisted became an officer i'll tell you it's, it's a very proud moment when uh, you hear get that selection and when you pin on the bars, if they're warrant officer or second lieutenant, it's still a, a you know a very gratifying, um, and um, it's an honor. You know. What what ways did it specifically help you in particular uh, transitioning from enlisted officer? Like and, and like what what were you able like to to specifically bring with you? Um, I think because of my. To be honest, with my time at um, 8th and I, but really my time on embassy duty, especially when I was a sergeant in, in Sri Lanka and I was the non-commissioned officer in charge, usually that is a staff NCO, staff sergeant or above, um, but the commanding officer of the company, uh, when I was getting ready to leave Saudi Arabia, said, look, he says, I want to keep you in the company. I want to, I'm going to send you to Sri Lanka. I'm going to make you the NCOIC. You're only a sergeant, young sergeant. But I think you've got the ability, the capability, and the leadership to do that. So I think that really helped me because I did have to, you know, I had five Marines that worked with me, but you're responsible for the security of the embassy. You know, you're responsible for every individual that is working 
that lives on that compound. You're responsible for their security, their safety. So, you know, we're, we were all sergeants. I was just having to be the senior sergeant. So there is, you know, so that really helped me to, I guess, again, improve on my leadership, but also get to know, get learn how to learn how to get to know people. You know what I mean? To really talk to them and 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 observe them and see when there's, you know, you can, you can, you know, you can tell, I'm sure you, you gentlemen can too. Somebody comes in, they're having a bad day, you know, right off, you know how they usually act, you know how they usually are. So it's the same thing. So I think that when I transitioned, I think that experience helped me because now it's not, you know, it's an officer to enlist it. So I just can't sit down and say, Hey Joe, how you doing today? Things like that. It's because you, you know, you have to have that respect back and forth. But it has to be respect and understand, you know, I'm an officer, you're enlisted, but I, I'm here to help you. What can I do? I know you're off a little bit. What can I do? What's the problem? And then be able to go to the organizations that the, you know, whatever, Navy Relief, you know, dispersing them, pay, pay problems, whatever. So, you know, it, it is a transition, um, but I think, um, and it is, you know, it, it is, especially if you're going to a different, like Vic said, going to a different specialty, I think it's more it's more difficult then because not only are you transitioning to be an officer, you're transitioning into a field that you've never been in. So now you've got enlisted people that look for you for answers to questions that I've never done this before. So it is a learning curve, but um, and I think most one officers and uh, because of the selection process, um, they want to make sure that uh, you know the lack of a better term, cream of the crop or the ones that are promoted so that they can. And then TBS helps going through the basic school. Um, that is, you know, that really helps you to transition because you get the classes. Okay, remember, this is, you're, you're listed as this. Now you're an officer. So you can't go out to the bar with these guys. You know, you can't go socializing with these individuals, you know, but you still got to take care of them. You're responsible for them. 24 hours a day, you're responsible for their family, make sure that they're, you know, got what they need and all like that. But um, so TBS does help. It, uh, I thought that was uh, a very good opportunity to, uh, to to help me with that transition. It, speaking of TBS, um, there was actually a, uh, an article in the Gazette not too long ago that talked about um, what on its surface appeared to be almost an, an administrative error. There were too many officers at the basic school at one time. And so they actually integrated some of the warrant officers in with the young second lieutenants. Um, and these weren't, you know, me seppers or academy guys. These are, you know, guys right out of, right out of college, maybe some ROTC background. But it was a really interesting sort of conglomeration of newly promoted warrant officer, so see, you know, fairly senior, or at least mid-ranking enlisted, who are now entering the officer ranks, and then obviously kids who were, you know, punk college kids just a few months ago. And some of the shared experiences there of, you know, the warrant officers understanding that, hey, there is a different way to look at some of these problem sets. And then the younger guy, the younger second lieutenant saying, hey, let's really, you know, tap into and cultivate all of this experience that we're surrounded by. What are some of your thoughts on that? Because when, um, if, correct me if I'm wrong, when you went through, it was very segregated, right? Here's yes. your warrant officer class. Here's a second lieutenant. Maybe you see each other at the Hawk, but they're really, 
not a lot of uh, cohabitation there, right? I, I, I actually think it's a great idea to integrate one officers in the basic school with the uh, second lieutenants. Um, I, I personally, when, you know, like when I was the assistant supply officer at the 8th Comm Battalion, um, you know, there was a, you know, a, a lieutenant that was the supply officer. And even in other places I've been, um, I have found it very refreshing that uh, they also would would le lean on the warrant officer and ask the questions. Well, what do you think here? You know, you've got a little bit more experience in this. How do you think we should handle this? You know, what are the ways, you know, and to, to ask those questions and you know, learn from the warrant officers. And I think that's great. And I think that would, you know, is a, um, a, a, a good idea to put some, you know, have warrant officers in with the second lieutenants, because I think that I think the second lieutenants can learn um, a lot from from them. Um, not on how to be an officer. They've gone through ROTC. They've gone to OCS. You know, they were commissioned, so obviously they have the the ability to be an officer in the leadership. But it's the experience of whatever field. But just, not even that. Just the experience of being in the military and some of the um, even out of the box things. Because you know, you got second lieutenants. You know, you're gonna have to handle family problems. You know, you need to know what to do, where to go, and how to help these people. You just can't say, I, you know, go see the first sergeant. You know, go, you know, handle it. Yourself. You can't do that. That's not the way to do it. So I think it's a great idea. I think the one officer would have a lot to um, to um, offer um, the second lieutenants while they're going through school. Um, and then when they're out to for these officers, and, and, and a lot of them do, they, they, they know that they're senior enlisted guys when they pick up one officer so that they have – you know, um, more experience. And so it's great that they um, are willing to do that, are willing to do that. Because again, they're second lieutenants. They are senior to warrant officers. So you got to give them, you know, the respect that is due as a, as a second lieutenant and vice versa. They have to give them respect. But to be able to communicate, talk and learn from warrant officers, I, I think that's an excellent idea. So you mentioned uh, that the Mustangs are having a uh, their next gathering in San Diego next year. Do you have any other like charity events coming up between now and then that you like? Um, to we, like I said, we at the national level don't don't do that. That's down on the chapter levels, okay. um, and I'm not sure what the chapter. I know they do, you know, community events. Um, so I'm not sure what they may have planned. All right, and then uh, how if someone uh, if a Mustang would like to join the Marine Corps Mustang Association, how do you go about doing that? So um, there is a website. Um, it's um, www.marinecorpsmustang.org. Um, you can go there, and there's uh, um, an app a questionnaire and an application. Fill it out, uh, pay your due, what uh, what the dues are, and uh, then we send you uh, you know information on being a Mustang certificate, you know, and things like that. And uh, and then uh, we periodically send out. You know information about the muster or charity events that may be coming up at the chapter levels that people might want to get involved in things like that but it's very easy to join and uh good organization awesome so uh vic do you have anything else or would you like to just go into the uh the final ceremonious last question yeah no i got not, nothing else so yeah tee it up man <laughs> all right so uh Ron, what was your uh, best day in the Marine Corps? I'll tell you, you, this is probably the same answer you get from every from a lot of guys that you interview. But for me, it was the day that um, 
as the non-commissioned officer in charge of the Marine Security Guard Detachment, the American Embassy in Jeddah, I decided to go over to the Marine House because I had a separate house. You know, I was a sergeant, they were sergeants, but NCYCs have their own house. So I had a separate house, but I'm still responsible for those guys and make sure they're not destroying the house, things <laughs> like that. So I went over for a little surprise visit and I walk in and there's this young lady there. Um, and I knew, literally, I knew at that second, this is the lady that I want to spend my life with. And two weeks later, I asked her to get married. She said yes. She's from England. So, you know, she had to come over and learn our ways and stuff. But, you know, through all the good times, bad times, deployments, separations, war, she's always been there. So we've been... Next, uh, see, November will be our 40th wedding anniversary. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't stay with me for 40 years. So, <laughs> but, you know, the, so for me, the most memorable day was the day I met my wife. Yeah, man, I can barely handle myself for 40 minutes. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't handle myself at all. So, <laughs> well, Ron, thanks for coming on. We, uh, we appreciate you. And for all those who are interested, if you're a Mustang, please look at www.marinecorpmustang.org and uh, get in there and uh, get ready to party in San Diego next year. Yes. Yeah, hey, and for all the uh, all the Marines that are listening, yeah, talk to you, your uh, career planner, talk to your first sergeant, talk to your platoon sergeant, talk to your section heads, MCEP, MCP, ECP, and listen to warrant officer. The Marine Corps wants to grow its leadership from within, so find out. And literally half of the uh, separating factor is just filling out the application. That's exactly right. I mean, yeah. that's, for warrant, that's all it is. I mean, you know, you, you fill out the, like I said, I didn't even do it, but you pull out your SRB, you know, and fill out the application, get a couple of people to uh, say, yeah, this guy deserves to be warrant officer. And it's just not a hard process. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're exactly right that the Marine Corps and I'm sure the other services are the same. You know, they would love to have their leaders come from within as much as possible because of the experience. And thank you for saying that, because that's, that is true. Well, thanks, Ron. Thanks for being on. This is awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. All right. Take it easy. Take, it. take care. Say hi to your mom and dad. Oh, I will. <laughs> right. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Mother Neck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.